and to play the piano like that is a joy to me. Uh, it is just really, really thrilling. And uh, part of becoming a believer and maturing uh, in the Lord is you begin to see God in all things, right? Uh, nothing except sin becomes blatant and uh, off limits to you, but you begin to see the glory of God in things like music and in things like relationships and in things like creation and different things. And it's such a blessing to be able to see that. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to begin reading today in verse 8 uh, down through 11. Verses 8 through 11 as we continue in this series, Victorious Church, God's people overcoming the world. God's people overcoming the world. And today we're going to talk about as uh, Jesus was sending this message through the pen of the Apostle John to these seven churches in Asia Minor. Last week, if you were unable to be with us, we looked at chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we were looking at uh, the church at Ephesus. And we talked about how they had to renew their love and their commitment to Christ because they had let other things in their life distract them, right? And so that today we come to the church at Smyrna. And so geographically, Smyrna's to the north of Ephesus, uh, it's a seaport type of town as well. Uh, Smyrna exists today. Uh, it's the modern city of Izmir, uh, Turkey. And so Smyrna still exists today. If you and I were to get on a plane and uh, fly over to Turkey and then we were going to go to uh, the South Asian part of Turkey, we would be able to visit a, a bustling, a booming city called uh, Izmir. And that is uh, this town of Smyrna, this church of Smyrna that we're looking at today. And I want to speak about this subject, fearless under fire, being fearless when trials come, being faithful believers who reject fear and place their faith and trust in Christ. Because when the heat of antagonism and hostility and aggression begins to arise in your life, as it did with these Smyrnan believers, you and I have to have an appropriate response. We have to have a faithful response, and we can't allow our lives to be riddled with fear. We can't allow ourselves to be overwhelmed with fear. And that's really what the Lord is speaking about in this passage today. He's writing those believers in the Smyrna church, and uh, at the church at Smyrna, and he is trying to encourage them and to remind them that Jesus was in control and not even persecution and death could keep them from the Christ. That the church, no matter the situation it found itself in, that the church would prevail. You and I need to be reminded of that today, my brothers and sisters, that no matter what side of trials we find ourselves in, no matter how difficult life becomes, even to the point of persecution and even to the point of dying for Christ, we need to understand that the church prevails in that way. We have a way here in our American sports culture to measure everything by wins and losses, right? We're either winners or we're uh, losers. We just feel like that is one of the two places that we're at. We either win in life or we lose in life. But the truth of the matter is, as believers, we're always winners. We always win in Christ. And so it's important for us to be reminded of that truth today. Peter Marshall was a Presbyterian pastor, and this is what he said. I want you to hear it uh, because I really want you to embrace it today. Marshall said, it is better to fail in a cause 
that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. I want you to hear him one more time. It is better to fail in a cause that will ultimately succeed than to succeed in a cause that will ultimately fail. Man, these Smyrna believers would come face to face with that truth and with that reality. They knew and realized that their faith in Christ may deliver them to death and that there would be Jews who were turning them into the Roman government. We'll learn more about that in a minute. Who claimed to be religious and claimed to be self-righteous. And really what they were going to learn was all those who reject Christ, although it seems like that they're going to succeed, they're going to ultimately fail. And all those who are in Christ, who it appears may be experiencing failure, even to the point of death, he reminds us, he says, you know what, you're ultimately going to succeed. So therefore, in the call of faithfulness to our Lord and King, we persevere, we push forward, we move forward in the strength and confidence of Jesus knowing that fear will only serve to sideline you and I from uh, our call to follow Christ. And so today, fearless under fire. Join in with me as we read verses 8 through 11. This is Jesus speaking. John is the one who's recording these words. He's going to circulate these, this letter to the seven churches and not just... These particular letters, but the whole book of Revelation, he's going to circulate this book of victory, this book of encouragement. He's going to circulate it to these churches who are experiencing tremendous, uh, tremendous persecution. And he begins in verse 8, and he says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, so last week we learned this angel is the messenger, right, of the Lord, and so he's speaking about the pastor. And so to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, right, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes through the power and the blood of Christ, says he will not be hurt by the second death. Fear is a formidable foe, and it's a real temptation to all of us. There are none of us who are gathered in this room today that have not battled fear in some form, some fashion, whether it be great or little, sometime or another in our life. Fear produces things like anxiety, but it also creates chaos. Fear creates chaos in our lives and even affects those who are around us. Fear stifles our thinking. It stifles our actions. It creates indecisiveness that results in stagnation and compromise. And that is never God's plan for us. Words like risk and words like adventure. Those words do not belong to a lost generation and a lost people. Those words belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. How we should be on adventure with Christ. How we should risk 
our entire life for the cause of Christ. Why should we do such things? Because Christ is altogether lovely and glorious and there's none like him. And we live our life and we die for the glory of Christ. And so we are not those who are indecisive or uh, who uh, pause or who compromise, but we move forward in the faith. Fear hinders us from becoming the people of God that he wants us to become. When we are dominated by negative emotions and thoughts, we cannot achieve the goals he has in mind for us. Fear drives people to destructive habits. Do you know why people do the things they do in our lives? Why you and I do the things that we do in our lives? Uh, many times it's because we are battling a fear that we have not surrendered to the cause of Christ yet. And so we develop destructive habits to numb the pain of this overbearing distress and this idea of, of failure and, and this idea of fear that just hangs over our head. Fear steals our peace and contentment, my brothers and sisters. When we're always living in fear, our life becomes centered on pessimism and gloom. Don't raise your hand, but are you there? Have you ever been there? You've just been paralyzed. You've been riddled. Your life has been marked by fear, and it's just gotten to the point where you can't hardly function from day to day in Christ because you're so paralyzed by this fear. Fear creates doubt. God promises you and I as his children abundant life, but if we uh, surrender to the chains of fear, our, our prayers lose their effectiveness. We don't pray in faith. We don't pray in hope. We don't pray in love, but what happens is we pray in fear. We're constantly consumed by those things that are in front of us, and even though we're trying to pray, we're not understanding the victory that Christ has for us. I don't know if you realize this or not, and I hope you'll take great, um, pay great attention at this particular point. This is just all introduction. This is free, right? We're not even getting to verse 8 yet. But do you realize that all fear comes in five basic forms? And so... If we had a psychologist up here today and we were to say to that psychologist, uh, we, we were going to give you 20 minutes and just run through all the different fears and phobias that there are. And that person would start rattling them off. And listen, there's not tens, there's not dozens, there's hundreds of different fears, emotions. There's all sorts of different phobias that set us aside. But most scholars would agree that all of those different phobias and fears and anxieties really can be contributed to one of these five basic fears in the human life. The first being death, or what psychologists call the extinction. It's a fear of ceasing to exist or annihilation. Everybody is afraid to uh, die, and if your faith is like that of Billy Graham, you may not be afraid to die, but you may be afraid of how you might die, right? Nobody that I know of just flips somersaults backwards and says, zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day, oh my, oh my, I'm looking forward to the day I die. I, I just don't know of people like that, right? And so there's this fear of ceasing to exist or this fear of dying. There's the fear of being assaulted or what the scholars would say of this fear of mutilation, the fear of losing any part of our body or life, the thought of having our boundaries of our life and human dignity invaded, I just want to stop right there and say to you, my brothers and sisters, this is why it's, it's tremendously important that we understand human dignity here at Calvary. It's tremendously important, husbands, that you do not abuse your wives. You never lay a hand on them. Somebody say amen. Husbands, you never lay a hand on your wife. 
Wives, you do not um, run your husband down and, and attack him verbally, attack the dignity that God's intended for him to have. We do not, listen to me, young men, we do not take advantage of young women sexually. Come on, church. You moms and dads, come on. We do not take advantage of young women sexually. Young ladies, we do not set our young men up for failure and take advantage of them sexually outside the bounds of marriage. Right? Why, why do that? Because we've all been created with this tremendous worth and dignity that God gives us by our Creator. And all of us have this fear of being assaulted or mutilated or this thought of someone doing harm to us, our body being invaded or assaulted from the outside. It's the second major category of fears. The third one is helplessness. Scholars call it a loss of autonomy, the fear of being immobilized or paralyzed or restricted. Sometimes people will say, I can tell you what I fear worse than death. I fear uh, almost dying, but being completely helpless, right? I fear having Lou Gehrig's disease, or I fear being just completely immobilized, or I, I, I fear having dementia, my mind just fading from me. I, I fear just spending the last 20 years of my life laying in a bed. And it, it, it's a real fear, this loss of, this cause of helplessness, or this cause that just, uh, where circumstances are outside of our control. Do you see how all of this is, is related to the fall? Do you see how all of these fears, when we come to know Christ, Jesus can take them away, right? Death, this whole idea of being assaulted or this idea of helplessness. This fourth fear is a fear of abandonment or separation. It's just a fear of being left alone or rejected or a loss of connectedness. It's this idea of not being wanted. Scholars call this a fear of separation. And then there's this fear of humiliation, or what scholars call an ego death, this fear of being shamed and humiliated, or any other um, means of being uh, disapproved of. We all have this tremendous fear of, of uh, humiliation and shame, the fear of shattering or... Um, our constructed ideas and what we think of ourselves being stripped away, right? But Jesus says, I'm, I'm here to strip all that stuff away, right? He wants us to realize we are what we are by the grace of God. Nothing more and nothing less. So there's this great fear. Can I ask you a question this morning? What are you afraid of? When you've gathered here this morning, what is it that frightens you most? What is it that has you paralyzed? Are you afraid of loss or rejection or loneliness or poverty or persecution or sickness or death? All of us are going to face such realities at some point or another in our life. And what you and I need to know and what God is here to say to us today is that God will never leave those who have placed their faith and trust in him. That God is enough not only to overcome our fears, not only to allow us to be fearless in the midst of fire, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of trial, that will come when you stand in Christ and for Christ. He wants you and I to know He is this great overcomer and that we have this victory in Him, therefore we can live fearless. Do you believe that? 
Listen to how the Hebrew writer puts it in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So if you're here today and you're afraid of death, you're afraid of being gone, you're afraid of, you're battling this extinction, I want to encourage you and let you know there is one who has conquered death and his name is Jesus, right? And because he has conquered death, we can place all of our faith and trust and hope in him. Here's the way uh, the Lord put it in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened. And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Are you here this morning and you're paralyzed by the, the fear of being left alone or being isolated or uh, the, the thought of nobody caring for you? I want you to know that the Lord says, I'm always going to be with you. And I'm not only going to be with you, but he promised the children of Israel and Joshua, when you go into that land that is inhabited by giants, I'm going before you. I'm going before you, not only with you, I've been there and done that. Oh, listen to me today. What are you gripped by? Jesus has been there. Jesus has faced it. Jesus has conquered it. And you say, well, what does that have to do with me? It has everything to do with you if you place your, if you place your faith and trust in him. Because it means the very victory that he has already experienced is the victory that you and I are destined to experience as well. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He says it this way in the book of Romans. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are guarded as sheep being led to the slaughter. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 8. Are you fearful this morning that you're going to end up this life and nobody's going to love you? They're going to recognize you for who you really are? I've got great news for you today. If somebody truly loves you, it's not that they love you because of who you are. It is because they love you because Christ is at work in you, making you the person that you're destined to be in Christ. That you're destined to be in Christ. And listen to me. This is good. Moms and dads, teenagers, listen to me today. If you get married thinking, I'm going to find the love of my life, and the love of my life is going to bring me contentment and joy. You are setting yourself up for a real rocky road in marriage. Because as soon as your wife or your husband begins to fail you and disappoint you and maybe not love you just the way you are, you're going to be looking at life and saying, why am I connected to this person? I had more worth or value when I was single than I am now. But you've got to remember that this whole picture and idea of marriage and family and relationship and connectedness, it only makes sense in Christ. In Christ. If Tracy loved me for the person I am and not the person that she married, I would be in deep, deep trouble. 
I'm about 200 pounds heavier. Well, maybe not that much heavier. I'm, I'm a good 100 pounds heavier than I was. My hair is patchy. What's left, right? The gap in my teeth is a little bit bigger than it was. I'm 54. Do any of you men, the older you get, the more set in your ways you've become? Wives, let me see your hands of the husbands who, they get more, look at these women's hands. Yep, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, Tracy thinks, poor Jake, he's never going to make it, right? You were one way with Caleb, another way with Levi. Kurt came in the middle, and now poor Jake, he just gets you at 54, right? Listen to me, listen to me. We love people, not because of what they were, not because of who they are, but because who God's making them to be and how he's making them to be in our life has profound, listen to me, profound value and worth in our life. That is a romance that Hollywood knows nothing about. Are, are y'all clicking with me today, are you? And so this whole idea... This whole idea of what we're fearing holding us and captivating us when Christ is this victor, he reminds those believers at Smyrna, listen, I know you're in the middle of a trial and things are bad. And I'm telling you, we're about to see, it was bad. And Jesus was saying, I'm going to lead you through. I'm going to see you through. So last week we looked at Ephesus and we learn that a victorious church is this overcoming people. A victorious church and overcoming people are people who love Jesus as first priority in their lives. I mean, what makes your heart beat, what gives you passion, what gives you hope, is that you love Christ because he first loved you. That he's at work in your life, allowing you to delight in him. We see that that's what Ephesus needed. And then we see a victorious church or an overcoming people today are people who are fearless and faithful during trial and persecution. The overcoming people of God who walk in the victory Jesus has provided. Will you write this down? Number one, they'll understand Jesus always identifies with his people. Pastor, I, I want to overcome this fear that's paralyzing me. Pastor, I do not want to be gripped and held to be less than what God wants me to be. I want to be this overcoming people like the people at Smyrna were, the, the way the people at Smyrna are. How will I be able to do it? You need to understand that Jesus always identifies with his people. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, listen to this verse 8, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus' deity claim is never more certain. If you wonder, does Jesus have any problem stepping to the forefront and saying, he is God in the flesh, he has no problem saying that. If you ever wonder, does Jesus have any problem identifying himself as God and creator, Jesus has no problem identifying himself as that. When he uses this phrase, the first and the last, it reminds us of what we see uh, here uh, in uh, chapter 1, uh, when you see him say, um, in verse 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as those dead, but he had in his right hand, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last. This is Jesus saying he is the beginning and he is the end. It is Jesus saying he is the Alpha and Omega. 
that he is the son of God. He is this king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He's saying, you know what? I'm everything. Everything that you could possibly want, I am it. He's reminding those believers at Smyrna that he's the Messiah, the long-awaited hope of the Jews, that he is Jehovah. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Son of Man. He is the seed of Abraham. He's the second person in the Trinity. He is Lord. Church family, do you believe that this morning? Jesus is Lord. And you need to understand that he always identifies with his people. And he uses this phrase, the first and the last, who died and came to life. He knows and understands this will be a lesson from Smyrna's history book that the people have learned. Several hundred years before the writing of this letter, Smyrna, which is modern-day Izmir, had been destroyed by a massive earthquake, and God had provided resources for the people to be able to rebuild their city. So when Jesus says he is the first and the last who died and came to life again, this is an identification that the citizens of Smyrna would have quickly connected to their city's history. They were not, listen to this, the church at Smyrna, they were not the victims of fate or hostile forces. They had nothing to fear for they belonged to the one who triumphed over death. Do you have that outlook this morning? When the people at Smyrna would die in the faith, that would not be the end of the story because resurrection is coming. What are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying to you, if you are going to face fear dead on and look it straight in the eyes with the confidence that only Christ can bring, you have to look at that, at that fear the same way that the Lord would look at that fear. And what does that mean? It means that you look at that understanding that Jesus has been where you are. And he completely identifies with his people. You say, Jesus don't identify with my sin. What? Jesus couldn't possibly identify with my sin because he was sinless. He was absolutely sinless. That's why he was able to be the propitiation for our sins on the cross. But my brothers and sisters, on the cross, Jesus completely identified with our sin. He identified with the pain of heartbreak. He identified with the pain of separation. He identified with loneliness. He identified with loss, guilt, shame. Jesus completely identified with those issues that cause you and I to be sinners. And you know why he identified with it? So that on that third morning, he could take it all away. He could take it all away. This church in Smyrna, oh, my brothers and sisters, they were not victims. They were not just causes of casualties of fate due to these hostile people or situations, circumstances. No, they were victors in Christ. There's never a time God does not identify with your trial, with your troubles, and with your persecution. You hear you a lazy rascal? You like to sleep all day? Get up and eat, lay around. You don't know the joy of labor and work. You don't know what it means to have enough passion or drive or energy to get up and go enjoy the day. I want you to understand something and know something. Jesus can deliver you from that. Jesus has dealt with everything that has possibly come to 
sidetrack us and set us aside. And so first of all, we need to understand that Jesus identifies with his people. But here's the second thing. Fearless in the fire. You and I need to do what the believers at Smyrna did. We need to endure the trials that come with following Jesus. And we believe that they, some of them were struck by fear because he reminds them not to be fearful, right? But besides that, there is not a scathing rebuke in this letter to the church at Smyrna. The Lord is pretty much saying to them, don't take your eyes off of me. What he's saying to them is, remember I have provided for you in the midst of your trial. If you will endure, there is a promise that awaits. And so we need to endure the trials that come with following Jesus. He said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Those believers at Smyrna, their tribulation came in two primary forms. First of all, it came in poverty. Matter of fact, this was abject poverty. What does that word mean? It means that it was miserable. It was wretched poverty. It was miserable and it was wretched because it was at the hands of those who were seeking to persecute the Lord's church. They had nothing. When you read this word, poverty, in the original language, it means that they had nothing because they would not renounce Jesus. They had absolutely nothing because they would not renounce Jesus and swear their allegiance to Rome. They would not align with the beast. Therefore, we learn in Revelation 13, 17 that they were not permitted to buy and sell. And so even though the Smyrna believers had nothing physically, the Lord reminds them, you are rich. What is he saying? You're rich spiritually. He's saying, even though you're in the misery of poverty, at the hands of wretchedness, I want to remind you that you are really, really rich. Do you believe that this is possible? Do you believe that you can experience poverty, real poverty, not have nothing? Do you believe that if there's a day that comes when our government turns completely against the church and evil is getting worse and worse, or you travel to a foreign land and somebody imprisons you because of your faith, they ask you to renounce Christ and you don't, and then they don't feed you and they don't clothe you and they let you begin to wither away. Do you believe that Jesus is enough in that situation? Let me say it to, a, uh, say it to you in a way that hopefully uh, it will make more sense to you. If you lose your job tomorrow and your spouse comes in and says, I've got bad news, and you say, wait a minute, honey, I've got to go first. I've got bad news. And they say, what is it? And you say, I've lost my job. And then your spouse says, I've lost my job too. And then you fall into that, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Right? A month into it, bills are starting to pile up. Three months into it, they're really piling it up. You're getting calls from collections. Maybe six months down the road, you've already sold everything you've had. You've liquidated. Now you're learning to live on a shoestring budget. And the days are long and they're cold and they're hard and you can't afford cable. Do you believe that Jesus is enough? Do you believe that people like Ken and Beth Perkins who've just retired back to Louisville, do you believe that they just wasted their life giving their whole life 
traveling around to persecuted people and finding out what it was that allowed them to live faithfully in Christ in the midst of communism governments, in the midst of people who were rejected them, in the, the midst of it costing them relationships and family and jobs and opportunities? Do you feel like that all of those people are just crazy? They look at us at Amer as Americans and they think we're crazy. Because we have all of this abundance and yet we do not exclaim with the psalmist like David did. David said, you put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and their wine abounded. You know what we need to do? We need to learn how to praise God and be able to thank God whether we are abounding in much or whether we have nothing. These Smyrna believers, they were experiencing tribulation, troubles, trials because of their poverty. But they were also being condemned by religious personnel of the synagogue when he says in the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but they're really not. Now, what is he meaning? Were they not Jews? No, they were. But he was saying they were not faithful Jews. They were not Jews living in the faith. They were not Abrahamic Jews. What does that mean? means that religiously they were Jews, but they had no heart change. They were not people who were living by faith. And it says, they are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These Jews were reporting these smirning Christians, and they were saying to the government that they were not of the Jewish faith, they were not of the synagogue. And as they reported them to the Roman government, they were reporting them so that they could be persecuted. We know little about that kind of persecution here in America. But my brothers and sisters, I would say to you, it's real. And there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ today, today, Sunday night, around the world in many places, who are suffering, suffering for their faith. That is what we put our hope and faith in, this Jesus who while he can give us abundance, can also give us the realization that we are not to live for the abundance, but we are to live for Christ. Smyrna believers did not enjoy the approval of men, but they certainly received the praise of God. And then thirdly, we need to respond faithfully when fear rises in our journey. We need to endure trials. We need to understand that Jesus always identifies with his people. And we need to respond faithfully. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Be faithful unto death. We respond faithfully when fear arises by understanding suffering is temporal. He says that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Here's the way Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. In this you rejoice though now for a little while. Say little while. Now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying if you are experiencing trial, difficulty, persecution, he's wanting to remind you and I today that we can respond faithfully when fear arises because of that difficulty, when we understand that suffering in the name of Christ is only temporal. He says it this way in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. Listen to this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties, that's fear, all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, church. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him, to this Christ, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This trial, this present trouble, is a little while. A little while. Pastor, do you really believe it? I do believe that. Spurgeon, he put it this way. This man lived with depression. Uh, He lived with a tremendous amount of gout. He was in pain. And listen to what Spurgeon said. You may readily judge whether you are a child of God or a hypocrite by seeing in what direction your soul turns in seasons of severe trial. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, the hypocrite flies to the world and finds a sort of comfort there. But the child of God runs to his father and expects consolation only from the Lord's hand and the Spirit's comfort. Where do you run when trials come? And then lastly, as you stand to your feet, we respond faithfully when fear arises by recognizing the trial is for a short time. And we receive the hope and promise only the Lord provides. And I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This crown of life was a garland wreath that was awarded to the athlete who wins the competition. It symbolizes to you and I, to those Smyrna believers... It symbolizes eternal life itself, not eternal punishment and separation in the lake of fire apart from a good, gracious, loving, heavenly Father. But it symbolizes eternal life, life that just goes on and on and on. So if my trial is a little, what is my reward? Eternal life. What does that mean? It means you'll never die. What does that mean? You don't have to be paralyzed and and, uh, conquered by the fear of death. Why is that? Because Jesus has conquered death. And he has conquered sin. Can I ask you this morning? What's keeping you paralyzed right now? Somebody break your heart sometime? Somebody cheat on you sometime? Somebody promise you something and then they didn't come through? Are you paralyzed when you lay your head down at night? What happened if I wake up? I don't wake up. I, I lose my breath in the night. Maybe you were abused as a, a child and you're fearful somebody's going to abuse you. Maybe you're fearful somebody's going to do something awful to your children and it just is paralyzing you. Jesus has victory For all of that. And we can walk in the confidence that Christ brings. The picture is this. For all of you 
athletes and athletic families. It's the grueling race. For all of you swimmers, it's swimming that lap after lap after lap, that down and back, down and back, down and back, and you're in it for the long haul, and you're trying to get there before that next person beats you there. You've trained, and you've watched what you ate, and you've taken all of these classes, and you're enduring, and you're enduring, and you're enduring. And why? Because at the end, you want to be the first one that touches that wall, and you want everybody to cheer and collapse. So at the end of the ceremony, they put that medal or medallion around your neck. For you basketball players, it's all of those down and backs, down and backs, down and backs. It's all those suicides, all of that training, all of those shots, all that listening to crazy coaches, right? It's all of that. So why? So you can hoist that trophy at the end of the year, right? Pastor, are you saying that I go through trial and struggle and it's temporary and it's so that... At the end of my life, I will experience eternal life apart from that and that my trophy will be Christ. And I would say to you, absolutely, that's God's plan. Bow your heads and listen to the scripture. And then I want to invite you to come and surrender your fears to the Lord. I want to invite you to come and say, God, help me to be faithful during times of persecution. I want to encourage you to come and say, God, I, I want to be the kind of Christian who is fearless under fire when trials come and difficulty comes. I don't want to blow it, but I want to serve you faithfully. James puts it this way in chapter 1, verse 12. Blessed is the man and woman who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Preacher, I don't know what to do. Ask God to give you steadfastness. Pastor, I want to stand firm in the midst of the trial. Ask Jesus to accomplish that in you. As Belinda begins to play, we're not going to sing this morning. I'm just going to invite you to come. Heads bowed, who will come and say, oh God, I want to be found faithful. Lord, deliver me from my fear.